you see a lot of things in the arthashastra about how to distribute things to people how to make how to raise resources for these kind of actions so there was a long fight and it is said legend says that chandragupt was so unhappy and so sorrowful at this doubt that he gave up his kingdom and he became a jain monk and he went to shravanagari this is an aspect of the morals which needs to be really studied and written down properly because they had a very special focus and chanakya kautilya had a special focus focus on saving the kingdom from calamity when you read chapter 8 on calamities many of these calamities are the things that contribute to inequalities in ancient in the ancient past and he had a a kind of uh, you know mitigating feature worked out for most of these things so it is my considered opinion that inequality could not have been the kind of problem that it is also you know you read a play for example if you read a play of mars then he describes common people also so the way in which common people are described are they in distress are they uh, you know hungry are they being exploited no they are not described like that namaste to everyone who is here i am glad to be here for the second of the series of talks that i am giving on the saptang state today we are going to talk about the janpad just a little bit of a brush up of what we have heard the last time so the whole purpose of this series of talks is to actually bring out in front of everyone our own indic tradition of politics administration society international relations something which is ignored almost completely ignored in the academic and in the mainstream narrative so how does anyone look at a state a state today as far as politics is concerned domestic or international is the most important concept we can think of so have indians thought about it ha- is there an indian theory of the state indeed there is and what is it called it is called the saptang state theory each state each kingdom has seven elements we saw what those seven elements were i will just repeat them the first was the king the second was the administration of the amatya so swami and amatya the third janpad land and the people which we will consider today the fourth is durg then you have dand durg and danda fort and army then you have kosh which is the treasury and you have mitra which is international relations we are going to look at all of them so don't forget that this is not a uh is something in isolation when we look at the land and the people we look at it in the context of everything remember we are trying to understand a kingdom a state in in looking at the state through the seven constituent elements we are trying to understand each and every aspect of it the illustrator of the moral log series vitali tare i had spoken about it last time about how together we have uh, done the illustrations i mean i just provide the input she is the one who does it so welcome gitali so to pick up the thread today we are going to talk about janpat the land and the people it is the third 
in this series of constituent elements which have been set out by Hotelier. Again, just remember that it is not just Hotelier who came up with this theory, but it is a very, very hoary and old one. It can be traced back to our Itihas Purans. It can be traced back to our Chaturdash Vidya Sthanams. But Hotelier is the one who has given it a very good shape and discussed it in great depth and detail in the Arthashastra. Now it is in chapter 6 that the description of these seven elements comes. And uh, in chapter 6, a description of the elements that we want. So what is a good Japan? What is a good team? What is a good coach? All that is in chapter 6. There is also a chapter 8 where there is a comparative description and comparative analysis of all these seven elements. So for anyone who thinks, and you know, there are a few people, you will see uh, a few theorists, you know, even say Mark Wittlish or Patrick Oliver, who are very important as far as the academic, Western academic scheme of things goes for the Arthashastra. They have a kind of very dismissive view of this really being a proper theory. They seem to think that it's a kind of one-off mention and it doesn't really need a lot of description or it doesn't merit much importance. I would beg to disagree because there is an entire chapter in which all these elements are discussed in relation to each other and in so doing, more and more elements of these, more and more aspects of these are clearly discussed. So, now on to the Janpar. So when we have uh, discussed that the king is there and a good administration is there, who will the administrate, administrators administer? Who will the king rule? Where will the king rule? Where will the administration work? Of course, in the Janpat. And the Janpat is not just the geographical area. It's also the people. Here, we will concentrate more on the people, you know, because this is not a geography lesson. This is more about the polity and society of the Arthashastra and of the Indic tradition. But remember that when any state is considered, we must look at its geography. We must look at where it is. And, uh, you know, uh, as far as strategic importance goes, as far as um, geopolitics goes, geography is never to be ignored. And nor does Cotillia ignore it. So let me um, give you a little bit of a description of what is written in the Arthashastra. I had occasion to mention last time that if any of you are seriously interested, you should read R.P. Kangle's translation of the Arthashastra. And that is the book I will be reading from right now. So this is chapter 6.1.8. So what is a good gender? It should have a strong position. You know, it's a very big description. I'm going to give you just a few things. So it talks of the geographical position, a strong position in the center, in the frontier. It should be able to sustain itself. It should be able to help itself in times of distress and also help others. It should be able to give livelihood to all the people who live there. Remember, we are talking about the geography right now. So it should have good arable land. It should have water. It should have good soil. It should have good flora and fauna. All this is discussed in this show. All this is actually delineated in this show. Rain for water. It should have trade routes, water routes, land routes. It should have a lot of forests. So, for those who are interested, mark 6.1.8 of the Arthashastra and read it in detail. Because it's very long. I'm just giving you some of the 
descriptions which are there of the geography of any janpan and uh, you know just to give you a taste of what actually is the tool by cotelia uh, let me read it out to you in sanskrit just a little bit and all those who do not know sanskrit just have a little bit of patience because you know this is from where all of it comes so we must familiarize ourselves not only with the translations but also with the original so i will just give you a flavor madhye cha ante cha sthan vanatma dharana this is strong in the center strong in the frontiers should be able to sustain itself swaraksha able to guard itself swajiva able to give itself livelihood shatrudveshi that means it should always be looking out for its enemies and be able to vanquish enemies shakya samanta which is you know referring to the administration and it in it also then goes on to talk about the types of soil forest vegetation flora fauna water everything this is as far as the geography is concerned now what about the people this was the land and what about the people so the people are also described as all this geography needs to be beneficial to men to the people who live there it is only then that a janpad can be set up over there that a kingdom can be set up over there remember this is the base of the janpad and in fact although kotilya puts it at number 3 in the saptang state there are other rishis there are other intellectuals who think of janpad as more important than the administration and than the king so they would like to put it first and you know there is certainly something to be said about it the land and the people perhaps they are the most important kotilya however remember puts it at number 3 because he thinks that the king and the administration are more important than the land and the people so what should the people be like so the people should be devoted to work they should have a wise master see a reference again to the king they should also be loyal and honest so these are the excellences of the janpad and of the people in the janpad karmashil tarshoka bali varna prayo bhakti shuchi manushya iti janpad sampad these are the excellences of the janpad now you see i have given you a kind of background what are we talking about so we are talking about the geography although i will not go into detail about it think of our indian subcontinent think of the way we are a peninsula we have a kind of naturally sheltered situation because there's water around the lower part of the country and at the top part you have mountains so we are capable of shielding ourselves from our enemies we have a lot of water in the indian subcontinent we have so many big rivers whether it is the ganga godavari kaveri sindhu the old saraswati we have we are fully provided with water with lakes and the monsoon and the rain water rain water and plentiful rain is mentioned as one of the good things that are that is needed for a good janpad so the indian subcontinent if we try to look at it with the with a comparison of the things that chanakya thought were important the indian subcontinent will be very well up as far as all these factors are concerned it will merit a good 8 to 9 on 10 in some maybe 5 or 6 but generally 8 to 9 on 10 
so that's as far as the geography is concerned and uh, i am not a geographer so for that maybe you know you need a geographer and perhaps it's more interesting to know about the people in the context of the land rather than just the land itself so uh, now we go on to looking at the people so what am i going to talk about with you i'm going to devote two of these talks to jalpan because it's the people we are interested in. we want to know what we will like for the illustration i mean i'm illustrating everything with reference to the model so we want to know what we will like as far as the satang state theory is concerned if you think about knowing any country even today what do you do you read about it you read about its people you read about what they like what they don't like what they do what what do they eat what do they wear where do they go what are their interests so we will pursue the same kind of idea so what will i do in this one this talk i am going to uh, split the talk in two as i told you so in this talk i will talk about roti kapda or makan food clothing and shelter how was this and i will obviously illustrate it with reference to the moderns because portelio was writing everything during the modern period and a lot of it was written with reference to the history of the moderns and of a period before it so he refers very often to countries or kingdoms which existed before the moderns in fact you know many of his examples are also from the itihas and quran so we do find the same kings and same characters that we find in the itihas quran tradition so that's a very interesting kind of uh, uh link i would say so i'm going to talk about in this in this session food clothes shelter then i will talk about travel and trade routes entertainment and public spheres and last but not least the position of women what was the position of women when i talk to you about all these i will be talking about all these things in the context of the moderns but do not forget that we are trying to understand all this in the larger context of a state and how the people in that state live to understand any country whether it is your friend or whether it is your enemy if it is your enemy it's even more important to understand that country you know? it's okay if you don't understand your friends so well it's imperative to understand your enemies so uh, these are the things that we look at we will be looking at the moderns because this saptang state theory that i am talking about is in the context of the moderns it is for understanding also the past because remember i write historical fiction and historical non fiction based on the moderns and uh, a lot of the things that i will be telling you today you can read in my book kurnabi you can find more details of all the things i talk about in my book as well as in this web series so all right now let us start with the concept of food the concept of food was not something that the moderns it just dropped on their head obviously this is a land a civilization which has been there for a very long time the moderns were inheritors of a certain tradition the vedic tradition and they were very much a part of that vedic tradition 
the way the tri etc if you remember when i was talking about administration and about what everyone has to study so the ved tri are the bedrock and the chaturdash vidyasthana this is these are based the base for society for everything that society did so there was a certain philosophy of food and a theory and practice of food what was it i'm sure if i if this was a quiz all of you would answer immediately of course it is ayurved it was all based on the principles of ayurved the upanishads had said that man consists of the essence of food so what you eat is what you are that is a basic tenet of the indic idea of food and this indic idea of food was of course you know very much in prevalence and very much in practice during the modern period so remember that the spiritual qualities of food were important very important so therefore there was there was a great merit in hospitality there was merit in sharing food food was not an individual item or individual activity it was a group activity so the spiritual aspects of food medicinal aspects of food were also very important if we have time uh, maybe i do a session on ayurved sushrut and charak so the medicinal aspects of food were also very very important so what are uh, you know of course we can't talk much about ayurved in the short period but i must definitely tell you that there are six basic um, types of food as far as ayurved is concerned as sweet sour salty astringent pungent and bitter so you were supposed to have in every meal a little bit of all these that was what was called and of course there are also different other categories food that you chew food that you suck etc and it is said that you should have something of each category in every meal now this is as far as the background goes how do we know what specifically the moreans ate so back to our good old arthashastra and i will share one shlok with you i will share my screen which is from the section which talks about agriculture so when it talks about agriculture if you read all the items which are there in it it tells you the things which were sown and obviously the things which were sown were the things which were eaten that is it is meant as a kind of uh, description and instruction of sarvadhanya pushpa phal shak kand mool valikya so all these are the things that you need to sow and the things that you need to eat now what about the details of these we can discern the details of these from uh, many many different sources and for those of you who are interested i will tell you what sources they are and what you should refer to i will give you what i have gleaned from all these sources so what did they eat as far as um, general food was concerned so the same things as we eat they ate grains they ate fruits vegetables roots etc there was three there were three sowings as far as agriculture was concerned the first first sowing was rice millet then priyangu then uh, you know there are some things which you don't eat any longer but the second sowing you will understand mudg which is moong marsh and other pulses so here you have grains you have pulses 
then in the third sowing was safflower lentils barley wheat mustard so these are the kind of basic things that they ate now uh, rice wheat barley millet ragi jowar marsh masoor lud etc are all basic things that they eat don't forget these three things marsh masoor and wood these three pulses were the base of the food habits of the past and you can see how similar similar it is we still eat many of us no matter which part of the country we come from we eat these things now these uh, foods i'll tell you later how they were processed but uh, how were they spiced up what kinds of spices were there so the spices were more or less the same as the kind of spices we use today for example pepper hing jeera cloves vinegar coriander or dhania cardamom cinnamon nutmeg aloes all of you can recognize all these because they are still a part of our kitchens the unbroken tradition of the food that we eat and of course i'll talk about clothes later that is one of the most interesting things about our uh, civilizational past it is true that a number of new things have been introduced and we eat much more than what was eaten in the past because well you know time goes on and we interact with different culture with different people and new things come in but the old things have not gone away so if we love mangoes the moreans also love mangoes pale bear banana jackfruit karonda jamun amla coconut all these were staples then and they are staples now so and what were the vegetables that they ate so vegetables were you know there was a a lot of there were a number of gods the long god the bitter god all those gods were eaten cucumber lotus roots methi spinach many many kinds of sags many many leafy vegetables so all this i have given you some names but what is the general impression that we get the general impression that we get is that the food was that which was grown locally because obviously it was uh, food was perishable and we didn't have the ways of storing it that we have now so it was grown locally it was grown in three sowings and a lot of it remains the same even today okay so now we have the raw materials so how was it cooked how was the food processed it is interesting to note that a lot of the processes which were used then and which we use now are those which add more nutrition to the food product that we are eating for instance fermenting or for instance sprouting we are aware today that both fermenting and sprouting add a lot to the food that we are eating and this was done even at that time so the grains were ground and of that you know you could make rotis or uh, you could mix that powder with water or milk and then eat it so these gruels especially the gruel made out of powdered barley were very very popular this powdered barley marsh masoor moong chana they were mixed the powder was mixed with water and guess what it was called it was called sukha doesn't it ring a bell sukha is that which from where comes the word soup 
we are very well aware of soup today so soup and especially barley soup was a basic food very popular food for everyone there were things which were this powder was also often made into round balls and fried and uh, let me give you the examples of a couple of uh, desserts this is something called apupa so apupa was flour which was mixed with uh, gur i'm sure all of you know what gur is and then it was fried and eaten now i come from bihar and we still eat something which is made in the same way and which is even called something similar it's called pua so i cannot but see a kind of straight line between the apupa of the mohens and the pua that we eat even today so these were the different things now for instance take vada all of us know what a vada is so they also ate things which was which were made in the same way and called patakas we eat papad the same kind of papads were called parpatas so even the words you see are so similar and the items are also very very similar now we move on from this to a special category a special indian category of food what is that milk and milk products the very heavy emphasis on milk and milk products milk and curds were also consumed fresh without much processing but a little bit of processing was done because uh, paneer a kind of proto paneer was also made and curds were very very popular other than that what is the other very important thing made of milk ghee ghee was important for rituals it was spiritually important it was important for your food it was important for many of your social rituals many of your religious rituals so it was a mainstay and thus the importance of the cow of cattle because milk and milk products were consumed for taste for health on a very 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 large scale now um, i have been talking only about a lot of sattvic food you know so you may get the idea that everyone was vegetarian and they ate only sattvic food that was not the case meat was definitely consumed and meat was consumed mostly through hunting but there was also animal husbandry and you know uh, keeping uh, hens and ducks and other birds so the meat was eaten it was uh, mostly as a result of hunting but domestication also and it was also mostly roasted it was eaten uh, by flavoring with spices and then roasting it and interesting thing that i may tell you right now is that you know this whole <coughs> controversy about who discovered biryani who made the first biryani that goes on and on especially in social media it recurs over and over again so let me tell you that meat and rice flavored together and cooked with spices has been a feature of ancient india all the people who think it came with the moguls just need to read the mahabharata they just need to read the balkan of the ramayana it is also mentioned over there so well uh, the vegetarians amongst us may not be so happy but this has been a staple of indian food for a very long time now did they only eat or did they want to drink something of course they drank a lot of things we spoken of water you know goes without saying we also spoken of milk and there were also all kinds of fruit juices and beverages made from fruit 
and uh, by fermenting them and there was also a lot of alcoholic beverages there the arth shastra is has a lot of focus on alcoholic beverages because these were very popular these were sold by the state and people were themselves not allowed to make alcoholic beverages they had to buy it only from the state only during festival times they could make it themselves and drink it so they made a number of different and then you know uh, things called arishta uh, ayurvedic arishtas were made and uh, many uh, tonics were made but also things which were just nice to drink you know mahasurs were made and anyone who's interested read the arthashastra for detailed recipes it is one of the to do in my to do list is at the top to try out some of the arthashastra recipes mango mahasur so they tell you you know put this put that mix this mix that one day i'm going to do that and see what i come up with and i you know if we really had those resources we should have a little club which does these things and makes all those old recipes so uh, these uh, alcoholic beverages were made in the country they were also imported so from afghanistan a lot of wines were imported one was called the harapurak it was imported from afghanistan later of course chandragupta put part of afghanistan in the same uh, in his own kingdom so then it was no longer an import but earlier they were also imported from afghanistan so today we are uh, discovering a lot of superfoods and learning the importance of processes such as parching puffing sprouting pickling blending of proteins all these things were very much there and not only the in, in the incipient stage but brought to a great level of sophistication i will just again show you the picture of a morian kitchen so i uh, would again point out a few things you know uh, the kitchens were not closed inside the house and we are used to now see they are very much outside and this is the kitchen of a big band a big courtier or a, a somebody who is very rich so it's a nice complicated kitchen see that there are many things going on somebody is making a roti somebody is pounding something somebody is uh, you know probably maybe making a makhana kogi and uh, somebody is also cooking a broth so illustrator will tell us all the things that she had in mind when she made this uh, illustration of the morian kitchen but this is just also to bring out to you the similarities between kitchens then and kitchens now in terms of processes of course we don't have open fires and now we uh, don't you know we uh, grind our grains we don't grind it like that we get it in a packet but the processes remain somewhat similar and that is what i actually want to point out by showing you this modern kitchen so this is as far as food is concerned and now i will go on to clothes clothes so first we need to know what kind of materials were there then we need to know how they wore those clothes so what kind of materials were there cotton in india has always been the land of cotton so obviously cotton india has also been the land of silk a little note over here china has often contended that silk was discovered and silk was first made in china there have been certain recent discoveries in chhannudar which are putting this theory to rest so either it was a kind of parallel uh, discovery or perhaps the discovery of silk in india was much older now a certain confusion arises also because even in the ancient past even during modern times or a little later there was certain silk which was imported from china 
but that silk was different from the wild silk that were from uh, the wild silk which was made in india and if we have found remains which are as old as the saraswati sindhu civilization and they have been found in chanudar it stands to reason that silk has also been around silk has also been a part of the indian subcontinent for a very long time so what does potelier mention what materials does he mention wool so that is sheep wool and uh, you know the wool blankets of punjab and nepal have been mentioned as being very great things of that period then uh, cotton silk hemp flax and an interesting thing which we don't use any longer that is uh, bark fibers so these bark fibers were the very fine ones which were called dupul and the you know slightly dupul and shawm were very fine ones and there were common ones which were worn bark fibers are worn by ascetics so it is a sign of asceticism to wear bark fibers as far as cotton is concerned it's uh, generally for commoners but there were some special very fine kinds of cotton they were called uh, tulapansi from central india and something which we still love to wear madurai cotton so madurai cotton has also been mentioned in the arthashastra one of the best varieties of cotton found in the subcontinent so what uh, kinds of different uh, silks were there so the pre chinese wild silk which was made from the wild silk worm this was called poche then there was uh, mulberry silk or petrona you know that which is still called pat in assam and pattu in tamil nadu and pc i am wearing a pat sari and assamese silk pat sari so you see the continuity every time i talk of anything every time the continuity will go on striking you all the time other kinds of silk were chinam soot kasar muga and there was a special thing called a jali pattika what is that you know that is weaving gold silver and textile wires together what is that that is brocade so the mention of brocade is also there in the rigveda and the mention of brocade is also there in texts which are closer to the modern period so we also had brocade at that time textiles were obviously you know they were woven cotton always has to be pulled into strings and then it has to be woven dyed it was also printed and the resist dyeing hand printing all these things all these technologies existed there was also felting felting together of cloth important thing to remember interesting thing to remember is that the making of textiles was mostly in the hands of women textile weaving was a woman centric industry and factory run by the modern state often as a means of providing for poor indigenous uh, indigent and uh, you know women who had no support of any kind so the state helped them by giving them this work of weaving and they got money out of it so now this is as far as the materials are concerned how did they wear it so i will show you two very fashionable people i will show you the morian man and the morian woman and i'll tell you what they were wearing this is from a based on a sculpture from a stupa at dharmut in madhya pradesh there were three things that everyone wore man woman child anyone that was the uttariya antariya and the kayaka so the uttariya was that which was on top see that shawl like thing on top that is the uttariya 
the antarya is what you wear in the lower half of the body normally tied tied around the waist or the hips and what kept it in place that was the kaya band the kaya band was that which was tied on the waist or the hips to keep your antarya in place these three uttarya antarya kaya band these are the basics of clothing for everyone so what were the specifics for a man the thing that he wore on his head what we call now a pagdi or what then was called an ushmish often the hair was tied up into a little round can you see a little round ball over here so the hair was tied into a little ball over here and the cloth pagdi was tied over the hair that was one special thing and you know uh, men in ancient india or men in the ancient past loved to flaunt their jewelry i am afraid men of today no longer have the privilege you know it's not seen as manly to wear jewelry that was not the case in the past this man is wearing a lot of jewelry but i would still say that even more of this kind of jewelry was in vogue so you can see he's wearing a necklace he's wearing arm bands he's also wearing something on his wrists he's also wearing earrings and these were of many many different types uh you can see that uh, can you see no you can't actually he is wearing kundals i don't know if it is that clear but he is wearing kundals and in the hand which is hidden there could well also be angutis angulikas so men wore all these things and sometimes can you see the the longer one there's a line coming down here that is a lambanam the smaller one is a kanthar and the longer one is a lambanam so there were so many different varieties of the i can do a session only on jewelry only on the varieties of necklaces i'm just giving you a small flavor over here so this is as far as the modern man is concerned now i will show you a modern woman so this stylish lady is again from the modern sunda period and again from bharu so what is she wearing first please notice it is again the uttariya the antariya and the kayabandi the basics are there but what about extras so women often wore more than one uttariya so this one see she has one on the head and she also has uh, one wrapped around like that on the head and one on the shoulder which you can't see that well she is also wearing and antariya and a kayaban and there is something else which is actually called as a uh, a kind of you know mekhla which is around the waist a kayaban is always made out of cloth and tied around the waist a mekhla is always made out of metal so the rich women wore gold mekhlas the poorer women would have worn some commoner metal but a mekhla was a metal bowl and the kayaban was a cloth one so here she is wearing the uh, kayaban dantariya uttariya and also a mekhla and also now you know look at the way she has tied her antariya this is called the kachha style what is the kachha style the end of the antariya is taken between the legs and tucked at the back so that becomes a kachha style there are so many other styles you know there is a machha wala style which was more popular in the vedic period so that is like 
fish scales. So then the style of your draping will be as if there are fish scales. It's styled like fish scales. Or you can have a bhair nivasini. A bhair nivasini is like a tubular skirt. There was also a kind of uh, the same thing as a lehenga. A bhair nivasini is like uh, the modern lehenga, which is still popular. So I'm just giving you a little flavor. Remember, this is a huge topic in itself. And I can tell you of so many different styles of tying everything for men as well as for women because they everyone showed off their individuality by tying their clothes in different ways. Then you have the jewelry of this lady. Start from the top and you can see that there is something called a sitara over here. A sitara is like a bindi. Now I have a very simple cloth one but this lady has a gemstone sitara. So it could be made of sapphire, it could be made of gold, it could be made out of any gemstone. There could be, uh, you can't see the back of her head but there is a hair ornament called a churamani. Then there are earrings of so many different types, jhimki, tal, patra, kanakkamal, kundal, so many different kinds of earrings. What else do you have? Angulikas in the fingers. In the neck, you have a kanthar and there is also the, the slightly longer one that you can see is actually a falakhar. Then there were things, if you wore one strand, it was an ekavalli. If you wore seven strands, it was a saptavalli or a dashvalli. So you wore different, different kinds of strands, different numbers of strands. Again, there is a long list of types of necklaces. Then in the arm, she wears keyur, wrist, she is wearing a kangan, balay, she is wearing anklets, kada. So you see from tip to toe, this one is a very, very, she is a prosperous, rich courtier. So she is wearing very expensive clothes. So people wore simpler clothes. I'll show you a couple of simpler clothes also. Now what are the general statements that we can make about clothes? I told you one, that it has three things. Tantariya, Uttariya and the Tarabhan. The other thing is, it was all unstitched cloth, which was draped. What about stitched cloth? During the Mauryan period, yes, stitched cloth had made it entry because of the links with the Greeks and the links with some of the Central Asians. So some people wore stitched cloth and who were those people? Soldiers. So soldiers dresses were often made of stitched cloth, but average people wore unstitched cloth. The, uh, the cholis or cholaks, etc. They were there a bit in this period, but it took another two, three hundred years for them to become really normal wear. So the upper part of the body was bare for women as well as for men. So unstitched cloth is one of the takeaways. Drapery is another one of the takeaways. What is the third takeaway? The third takeaway is that clothes were gender neutral. Have you noticed that I am using the same words for clothes for men as well as for women? They wore the Antariya, Uttariya, Kaya, Bandha, Both men and women. What does gender neutral clothing say for the state of society? Can you talk about gender neutral clothing today? What is a skirt? Does a man wear a skirt? And a woman wearing trousers is a woman wearing a man's dress. We have got this from Western Abramite civilization. For us, clothes were gender neutral. There was absolutely no discrimination. So there was a piece of cloth. You gave it to a man, he draped it in a different way. You gave it to a woman, she draped it in a different way. So remember this. These three takeaways are extremely important. What I will end with, I will end this section with a little bit of a peep 
into how clothes may have evolved but they remain the same i am wearing a sari and the sari that i wear today of course it was the women of dorasanko and it was rabindranath tagore's family who actually popularized this kind of wearing of a sari but it still owes its beginnings to the antariya uttariya and the kayaban and the chola and often some of the traditional ways of wearing a sari actually start in the same way with the niviban that the antariya had started with all those years ago so i the sari that of today is kind of you know like a stylized uh, uttariya the petticoat is like an antariya and we wear a chola now i will just show you an ancient dhoti and two ancient saris so can you see a man wearing a dhoti it could as well be a man walking around in uh, uttar pradesh or bihar today but no this man comes from uh, 2nd century bc mathura and he is wearing a dhoti so much like one of the dhotis that anyone today would wear and i will show you pictures of two sarees also again from mathura can you see these two sarees can you see that then we can recognize them as sarees of today but these are also 2nd century bc figures so the point i am making here is never under underestimate how much we are rooted in our past even though we forgotten just scratch the surface and the past will come tumbling up we just need to scratch the surface and realize all of us you know when uh, look at me you know the kind of clothes and things that i'm wearing there are examples from the indus valley civilization for example bangles do you know who first made bangles and who first wore bangles they first been found in the salsafi sindhu civilization so these come from there look at uh, the sindoor that i am wearing the sindoor also comes from the saraswati sindhu civilization so if you look at me an average person an average indian woman i reflect so many eras of indian history and keep scratching the surface and knowing more about the past and the roots of what we have and we find more and more of these connections everywhere so i think that's as far as i have time for as far as clothes are concerned now we'll go on to where did they live where did people live so they lived in cities they lived in towns villages they also lived in forests and uh, they made houses they made houses out of mud they made houses out of stone daub uh, so daub and wattle they also made houses out of brick and mud wood and decorations the mauryans are famous for wooden buildings now you would not be able to say it from any of the uh, things that have still survived because wood is a perishable material so we do not have clearly have examples except in umrar near patna there are some um, huge structures of wood found which they say belonged to the palace of the mauryans so that is about the only wooden thing which is left but you can read from texts and you can read from inscriptions that wooden carving was very very feminine to the construction and decoration of the dwellings that the mauryans lived in so uh, there is something let's look at the palace of the mauryans okay i will also show you a palace now this mauryan palace this is as described in the arthashastra and an artist's representation of this which was used in my book kurnabhi so i will just show you the palace 
he also knew that perhaps the name of the palace of the Mauryans was Subhangutasan. This comes from the Mudra Rakshas. That is the name of the palace. And Mudra Rakshas is about the enthronement of Chandragupta Maurya. So maybe we can make it as true. So you can see that the king had a very, well, obviously, a very kingly palace. His bed chamber, guards, council chamber, horses, elephants, chariots, etc. All very beautifully done, all very beautifully decorated. From descriptions of that period, we also know that there was a signature modern design. What was that? There were golden wines or silver wines which were carved around these wooden pillars and small little golden birds sat on these silver wines. So this creeper and bird design is a signal and the signature Mauryan motif. Silver wines and small golden birds. Where do we get this from? I have gleaned this description from Buddhist literature. There's a lot written about the Mauryans in Buddhist literature. So this is what uh, this uh, comes from. So you see uh, the level of prosperity was such that they decorated their palaces and houses with gold and silver and of course paintings and murals and uh, all those other things. I will also, uh, I wish I could show you some more things but again for lack of time but you can go and watch Morelok and see how different houses were constructed. So there were different houses for town, different houses for villages. For courtiers, then there were farmers' houses, then there were monasteries, there were gurukuls, then uh, there were also uh, religious structures, temples, and people who used to live in temples. And uh, again, uh, the Buddhist stupas and vihars and the way they were constructed. So if you watch this episode on Morilok, you'll be able to see many more of these things. So normally, you know, the houses were open together with nature. There was a courtyard. They were built around courtyards and they were multi-story. And there were normally uh, stairs to reach the top columns and there were also pillars. So these pillars, I will have occasion to talk about modern pillars next time. But these pillars were made in a very particular modern style. And they had capitals, which were, there were lotuses made on those capitals, crocodiles, lion's head, lion's heads, etc. So this was a very high level of decoration, a very high level of achievement in the area of uh, Shilpa Shastra. Again, I have later occasion to talk about Vastu Shilpa in the next time, but just as a kind of introduction. So these were the houses. And what about the, the cities and towns? So there were, you know, uh, the city of Patliputra was supposedly probably the biggest in the world at the time of and it is estimated that it had 140,000 inhabitants. There were also smaller cities. Remember those four capitals I told you about. They would be about, say, 12,000 people, etc. Then there were even smaller cities, say, like um, Ayodhya, Kapilvastu, Kashi. These were also well-known cities, but not that big. Apart from that, of course, there were smaller villages. I will uh, show you uh, the city of Patliputra as taken from the Arthashastra. The entire description comes in the Arthashastra for anyone who wants to read it. So here is the city of Patli. So it was, all the roads ran at right angles. 
it was organized in a very specific way what who was to live where which business was to operate where what was to happen where it was all organized very well there were many many civic rules and regulations about where you could build the house how far it should be from the other house how broad the road should be how much distance there should be between the road and the house what were the common things that you had to do you know like you had to keep water on the road you had to keep the road in front of your house properly watered so there were some civic duties there were some civic rules so spitting so can I, i'll show you just some of the things which i hear see there's a treasury this is to the northeast is uh, the place where the scholars and purohits used to live then there was a place for yagya which is called the ritual area then there was water storage elephant stables this is the city center then there is a and in the city center remember would be living the king then you can see a uh, records and audits office remember the akshapatal adhyaksh so he would operate from here this is the armory where the army would operate from and remember our uh, sannidhatri who used to make so many who was supposed to make so many warehouses and storehouses you can see you can see the storehouse for forest produce you can see the commodity warehouse and if i just uh, zoom out a little bit more see where the vesha that is a business all the businesses were supposed to be here can you see to the northwest the hospitals can you see the temple so everything is set down in a particular chapter in the arthashastra this is also this is illustration is from my book urnabhi 1 because uh, a lot of the plot hinges around the map of the city and the map of party uh, and the map of, of the palace what i was telling you is that spitting defecation and uh, dirtying the city they were subject to great fines so you could not do all these things and dirty the city so perhaps the average person from patipur who lived in a cleaner more organized and better city than we do today because a lot of care was taken to keep the city organized and clean two of the things that we need most from our urban spaces what did you gather what is the take away from this description of the way people lived what they ate and what they wore and what they did that it was a very prosperous and very sophisticated society things were not done without deep thought there was a philosophy of everything if there was ayurveda there was also shilp shastra and it is very interesting to note the links between clothing and yoga the places where you tied your clothes where they were tied where they were loose were according to the physiology of the human body so remember the same philosophy the same ideas informed all these things and since it was such a prosperous society it could afford to not only spend time thinking about it but use the most complex expensive perhaps even rare items that were possible to be used for these things now everyone did not use gold and gemstones and did not live in palaces but the average level of prosperity from what you can glean from the texts of that period was very very high there was little poverty and there was no starvation because there was always you know you lived in a community if you didn't have anything then other people came to help so we perhaps lived in a less technologically advanced but better society in the past in terms of the thought that went behind it 
and the kind of support systems you had. And then again, you know, cities and uh, spaces were much cleaner and much more beautiful than today. Nobody can call Delhi beautiful or what they do so much of a stretch of the imagination. So perhaps we've lost that connect with nature and the beauty which was part of our lives. So now uh, the other thing that I wanted to talk about today, I end the section on food, clothing, and shelter. The other thing I wanted to talk about today was travel and trade routes. So uh, travel is something that we tend to think that you know we perfected. Modern society has perfected travel and we've all become great global travelers in this globalized world. That's not strictly true. Because even though the means and mode of communication was slow, human beings have never ever been deterred from traveling. Migration was the first travel. Human beings migrated and covered the globe. So also was travel a part of ancient societies. Travel was a part of the lives of people in modern India. People normally traveled for two or three basic things. First was, of course, you know, the army traveled a lot. So it was for fighting. Then you also traveled for, uh, to visit Deerthans. That was a very important thing. You traveled for trade. Because trade was, like I told you last time, it underpinned modern society. You traveled, tradespeople traveled, Satvahabs traveled, and they brought goods from place A to place B, etc. Then you also traveled for intellectual pursuits because there were big gurukuls and kings who uh, supported intellectuals and they had big shastras. So people traveled for all these things. These are generally the reasons why people traveled. Now, it was a long time ago. So what was the situation in terms of the infrastructure? Were there roads? What did you use? What kind of thing did you only walk? Or did you have something else? So yes. There were roads and there were trade routes. There were trade routes in India, in fact, have been developed perhaps even before the Saraswati Sindhu civilization came into its own. If there is a very interesting research paper, her PhD thesis by Nayanjot Lahiri, in which she has explored trade routes of the Indian subcontinent, within the Indian subcontinent and also outside towards the world. Any of you who are interested, it has been published in book form. So Nayanjot Lahiri's PhD thesis is, of course, it's a very good source. There are others also. But it's a very good source for understanding the way in which in the really hoary past which we don't know about, these trade routes had already been developed. Now, I will show you the two main trade routes of India. One was called the Uttarpath and the other was called the Dakshinpath. The Uttarpath was in the north and the Dakshinpath was in the south. And uh, they consisted of roads which connected places to each other. They also consisted of riverine routes because there are so many rivers. And they consisted of travel domestically. And I will show you how they connected up with travel internationally. So let me show you the Uttarpath. Okay, so you see, this is the Uttarpath, which was in the north. These are the different places which were there, which were important trade centers. So these were the places where most of the trade used to happen. 
and they were the Mauryans used to run special customs departments to take their own bit, little bit of tax from all this. So you see how it goes from the middle of the country to the top. It goes to the top and this is the Uttarakhand. Now, Koshambi has been marked in red because this was a place where the northern and southern trade routes crossed. You can see the important cities on these trade routes, Patlipur, Kashi, Koshambi, Hastinapur, Takshashila, Mathura, Tamrilipi, Chandraketu, Gadh, which is now in Bangladesh, by the way. So these are the important places in the northern trade routes. And I will now show you the southern trade routes. So you see how it went down to the south. And it meets the northern trade route at Koshambi. And that is why Koshambi Prayag is seen as the center of the world for us. Because everyone from everywhere across the world, because remember these domestic trade routes, then went and joined international trade routes. So actually the entire world came and met at Koshambi or at Prayag. And it is still the place where our own timeline, the Indian timeline, that's where it passes from even today. It is seven and a half degrees. So these, remember, Bharukach and Sopara, these have a link with the Indus Valley Civilization. Bharukach is a really, really, very old port. And so is Sopara. So this is, these are the kind of routes along which people travel. They travel for all the reasons that I have told you. Now, uh, what were the things that they used to travel? Of course, you know, there were horses, elephants, ox carts, simple walking, and uh, maybe um, donkeys, mules. So all these were according to your own, whatever resources you had, you could use these to travel on. What about water? So on water, obviously by boats and ships, and you can see some of the interesting illustrations we have made of boats and ships if you go and uh, check out this episode this episode 7 so you'll be able to see and we've made those after a great deal of reference to a lot of texts and sculptures etc about how those boats and ships would have looked so uh, water is fine for boats and ships you don't need a road but you need roads for travel by uh, I mean you need roads on the surface if you have to travel by ox cart or horse or chariot or if you have to walk. And roads were a very big preoccupation of the Mormons. So the uh, roads were made by clearing the surface of all obstacles. Then they were upraised. So the whole road was a little upraised from the rest of the land. Trees were planted on the sides and wells were also dug from time to time so that the travelers would get water. Now, why am I, am I saying this, uh, you know, just in general terms? No. Well, this is from the Arthashastra. And the Arthashastra describes the names of those roads. It gives you the dimensions of those roads. For example, if it was a Rajpat, then this should be the dimension. And it uh, even goes down to smaller and smaller, you know, the ones which were in the provinces, etc. And the names and dimensions of these, again, as I say, if you go back and watch that episode, you'll be able to see it. Just a bit of uh, background is that roads have been there in the Indian subcontinent for a very long time and the construction of roads and the description of roads has been found, right, you know, uh, not just roads, boats, water, etc. if you start from the video. And also 
since I have translated the Valmiki Ramayana, I remember more of it offhand. So if you read the Ramayana, there is a certain time when Bharat goes to meet Sri Ram. When Sri Ram has left for his exile, but he has still not gone into the deep forest. So there's a huge description of how Bharat takes the entire army and then he moves with the army towards where Sri Ram is, where with Sita Ji and Lakshmi. Now in that description, Valmiki writes a lot about the people who are there with the army. And being amongst those people are those who build the roads. The description of how those roads are built and how those roads are made easy to traverse and easy to travel. So roads have been around in the Indian subcontinent and are a very important part of the Janpath because if the Janpath is as big as the Indian subcontinent, then you have to have some way of traversing it. Otherwise, you cannot get the kingdom working as a unit. There will be no communication, there will be no commerce, then there will be difficulties in security. So communication, roads, infrastructure, basic for uh, the Janpath, mentioned by Kautilya, where he does say what kind of road there is, what kind of obstructions are there, and how you should be able to make good trade routes. He mentions that in chapter 6, about how you should be able to be good trade routes and we have found those trade routes for the Mormons. Another very big source for information about roads, travel and the guest houses are the uh, inscriptions that we have found. Mormon inscriptions give a lot of descriptions of wells, guest houses, etc. So, you know, there were very uh, good guest houses provided by the Mormons along these routes. Those guest houses had places for you to stay at night. Some of them even offered you food and they offered you security and then you could go off again in the morning. So these were built only for the benefit of those who were traveling. So you see that travel was important. It was taken care of and the state thought about it. The state talked about it and did a lot of things to make things easy for the person who was traveling. Now this is as far as travel is concerned. Now what about some of the other things I want to speak of? Oh, what time is it? I, this particular section I have called as travel, entertainment and public spaces. So let me talk about entertainment. What was the entertainment? Talking to each other and you know meeting each other was the biggest entertainment. Perhaps today it has it's a little bit down because we spend maybe more time watching films or doing Twitter or whatever it is than talking to people. But uh, meeting people was a very big part of entertainment. So there were very specific kinds of parties which were held. Now these parties are mentioned often in the Arthashastra in different contexts. You know, like they say that if an Amatya does some really good work then the king should reward him with this kind of party, which will takes him on a boat cruise across the river. So they have been mentioned in different contexts. Another source for knowing these is the Kam Sutra. Because the Kam Sutra is a lot about how people should live, how the focus, the subject of the Kam Sutra is a Nagarak. The Nagarak is the main person, what he should do, what he should not do, how he should behave. And uh, his entire life, including his sexual life, of course, that's what the Kam Sutra is often about. But the Kam Sutra is a kind of manual of social interaction, manual of social life. And it mentions a lot of parties. So what kind of parties were there? So there were three kinds of parties. It's a 
Samaj and Bihar. So Utsav were the uh, festivals and the temple festivals. I will talk more about it next time, hopefully. The Samaj were the social gatherings. They were held in homes or gardens with food, drink, jugglers, artists, entertainments, etc. And there was Bihar. Bihar meant going out somewhere, whether you went out on a boat cruise, as I had mentioned, or whether you went out to picnic in the woods. So these were the three kinds of parties. Now, remember that there were, uh, since life was led through uh, the Ved Trai and through the solar sanskar, for each of the sanskars, for birth or for uh, Upanayanam or for everything, or for Viva, of course, there was a bridge, there was a party. So these were the social rituals, this was a social glue which kept everyone together. So there was uh, gossip, discussion, there was also some kind of intellectual element to it, poetry, and uh, uh, people would uh, you know, recite their own poetry or they would talk about their intellectual attainment. So think of it as a salon of the French, some kind of thing like that. All these were part of entertainment through parties. Now, these were done at home. They were also done in the public sphere. So, there were gatherings in the marketplace. There were eating houses. And eating houses were uh, of different kinds depending on what they sold. And depending on what kind of people went there. There were also drinking houses. Drinking houses were very, very important. And Portelier spends a lot of time on drinking houses. Who should run them? How much money should you get out of them? There was also, of course, you remember a particular uh, secretary or minister or department for alcoholic beverages. So these drinking houses were very, very important. Then there were beautiful gardens, public gardens, as well as private gardens. Then there were rivers, lakesides, and people met for, you know, suppose uh, a group of women went together for a bath. So that was also a social occasion. So perhaps a little different, but the main thing was that people met each other a lot, perhaps more than we do now. And that was one of the major ways in which they entertained themselves. Something that I would like to focus on today is theatre. We have a fabulous and wonderful tradition of theatre. It is a special feature of ancient India. And uh, again, I keep mentioning this, the roots are in the river. The roots of almost everything are in the Rigved and so also for theatre. But there is a special Natya Shastra which is called the fifth wave. This Natya Shastra is meant for everyone. It is high aesthetics philosophy made into entertainment for everyone. It is uh, said to have been composed around the time of the Mormons. And a lot of things which were, the tradition has been there. It has been there in the Vedic tradition, Itihas, Quran, everything. But the Natya Shastra is said to have been formalized during the time of the Mormons. So again, this was lost in the mists of time, but it was, some excerpts were published in 1865. The full version was only published in 1894. And it was only then that a lot of things were understood to have been formalized in Indic uh, aesthetics a very long time ago in the form of the Natya Shastra. So, uh, in the Indic tradition, Bharat Muni wrote this on the instructions of Lord Brahma. 
Lord Shiva added his inputs and sharpened the role of women. So there are three traditions of theatre: the Brahma tradition, the Shiva tradition, and the Vishnu tradition. The Brahma tradition is the Rangshala, the theatre, the theatre of kings. So they constructed a theatre. The construction was a very specific thing. All the measurements, all the technicalities are there in the Natyashas. This was the Brahma tradition. Let me show you a stylized interpretation of this theatre. This is how it was. And don't think that any of the things here are just by the way or just for decoration. Everything that has been made there is according to certain specific instructions. And all the features that you can see have been described in the Natyashastra. And over here, a dance performance is going on and there are people, some sit on the floor, some sit on asans. These are all as described. And it is said that the only extant theatre which we find today is found in Ramgad, in the Ramgad caves. So there is an extant theatre also with a little inscription on the wall. And that theatre is perhaps the only extant one which we have from ancient India. It was uh, in the form of a cave. So it is a cave theatre because the shape of the cave was the same as you can see over here, kind of semi-circular cave. And you can see pictures and read about the Ramgar cave theatre. So this is the Brahma tradition. These Rangshalas were made by rich people, the king or rich courtiers or rich merchants. What is the other one? The next one is the Shiva tradition. Now, Lord Shiva had added his inputs to the theatre tradition. What did he add? He added basically the inputs, the role of women actors became much more. He added a few vrittis like the Kashiki vritti, he added Tanda vritti and he added the Parvati last. All these things were added in the Shiva tradition. Now, Lord Shiva is a different kind of god. He is an organ. He is everywhere. He does not look for formal things like Rakhashala. So this is the very grassroots tradition of theatre, which is in the open, which is in the thinking houses, which is with the wandering artists. And it is for everyone, anyone on the streets, poor, rich, in the bazaars, everywhere. The Rangshala, by the way, was only by special invitation and admission. Anybody who wanted could not go there. So I will show you a Shiva tradition. This is what it is. You see, this is out in the open. And see the difference in the content also. And see the way people are watching. There are some who are sitting in their drinking houses. There are some who are just standing, loitering, doing nothing. So this is a more open kind, open, inclusive, for everyone kind of tradition. And there is a there is yet another one, which is the Vishnu tradition. And that is the one which is connected to temples. So dance, music, theatre, we know, are very closely connected to temples. So this is the Vishnu tradition. Now the temple that you see in the centre of this illustration is an actually existing, the remains of this temple at Vidisha actually exist. So this is one of the oldest extant temples of India. The rest of the scene has been discussed and imagined by me and the illustrator. The temple is as it stands and this is the way that the theatre tradition was connected to temples. The stories were connected to our Mahabharata, Ramayana, Purans, to the Devis and Devtas 
and can you guess what is the subject of the play over here of course it is samudra manthan this is the subject of the play which is being held over here so this is the vishnu tradition there is also yet another thing that we must remember as far as the theatre tradition is concerned that the tradition which originates from the ramayana and the mahabharata so we know that there are different kinds of nataks with epic heroes and uh, the ramayana is one very popular one still exists in the form of ramlila so this tradition also which is very closely associated with the ramayana the associations with the mahabharata some of them have left our shores but are very much alive in southeast asia so the tradition of theater which emanates from the mahabharat is at a low level in india but in southeast asia it is still very vibrant but our ram leelas still exist and they are still very very popular now uh, i have been talking to you about uh, the very uh, what can i say i mean only those things which are connected with devis and devtas etc but there were also stories connected to normal people not just epic heroes and gods but normal people so there were uh, playwrights bhas is a modern playwright thankfully we still have 13 of his plays which survive so we can read them and know something about it other than that there is a story tradition called the bad kaha this bad kaha was written somewhere 6 700 years before the common era it does not exist any longer it was written in prakrit it is now lost however thankfully for us dissensions of this in different indian languages in sanskrit in tamil in marathi they exist although they are much later than 10th 11th century the katha sarit sagar brihat katha panjari the perun kottai all these still exist so we can kind of reconstruct it so these stories of common people fancy stories of people who went to far away lands or small stories of people who lived in kashi uh, mathura all these were there and all your stories of uh, you know uh, the thousand and one nights arabian nights all these are from this badkaha i will again add my uh, you know the ditto ditto rider for everything that this also must have originated in the rigveda because the rigveda mentions stories of common people called the gatha narshamsi and the similarities between the content of the gatha narshamsi and this badkaha and the stories which we can still read in different indian languages are too strong to be missed so this is a general statement of what was there during the time what about uh, the specific from the arthashastra which is what we are concentrating on so there is a lot of description of artists and performers of different types nat nartak vadak and there is a description of prekshagrihas or theaters the rangshalas that i have mentioned remember there were three prekshas and purush prekshas so there were different ones also apart from the mixed ones there were also separate three theater i mean theaters for women and theaters for men there are certain shlokas and texts from the arthashas describing these which uh, again you can see if you go to check out morello then you will be able to see this so the importance of entertainment and theater and artists was such that there have been this, uh, there are instructions in the arthashastra about where these wandering parties of uh, actors and actresses can go when they can go not during the sowing season because people are not to be distracted 
sowing and harvesting season not allowed but otherwise they used to travel they used to stay in a village the village would take care of everything their food their lodging and they would also pay for them to be uh, to set up their own performance and everyone who paid would be able to watch so this is all there in the arthashastra so there are also parallels between natyashastra and the arthashastra because nritya natya geet vadya patya what is this nritya dance natya is acting geet is singing vadya is instruments and patya is poetry all these are mentioned in the natyashastra and parallelly in the arthashastra what are the other entertainments mentioned gambling dicing then the houses of ganikas the dancing houses of the rupjivikas and the ganikas all these are also mentioned in the arthashastra and i have already told you that uh, mauryan specifics can be gleaned not just from the arthashastra but also from ashokan inscriptions so i was telling you that uh, they have given the dimensions of uh, different kinds of roads so one say for chariots these were called rathya then there were roads called dronmuk so i am right now telling you about the specifics mentioned in the arthashastra so the description of these named kinds and sizes of roads were there so there were also special places for foreign travelers because a lot of people came to modern india a lot of people went out from modern india there was a lot of i must actually let me show you something which i haven't i will show you the international trade routes and you will see how india was connected to the world so foreign travelers were uh, a very important part of the city see this is how india was connected to the world the little dots that you see those are the sea routes and just in your own mind remember that over here was a uttar path and from the uttar path there were connections to the gulf then there were connections to europe to the left and to the right there were connections to southeast asia japan china all these have been mentioned in many texts in and around the modern period so foreign travelers were a very important section and there were many special things done by the mauryans for foreign travelers and then i have already told you the lots of boats cruises etc these are also specifically mentioned in the arthashastra so this is as far as uh, travel is concerned and i think i will end travel over here uh so uh, surendra ji wishes to know about the inequality uh, if it existed in the mauryan empire between a commoner and richer class and middle class okay so uh, this is a question which can be answered uh, by looking at some of the remains that we have found from that period and also looking at texts so in certain areas we have found remains of the houses of common people so we can see how they were built how they lived and what they ate similarly there are mentions in different texts so in my considered opinion inequality as a problem per se did not exist although there were certainly very rich people because there were kings courtiers rich merchants and of course there were farmers then there were there would also be people perhaps you know landless laborers who only work for the farmers also 
if i were to answer this question for the mauryan period alone and not for ancient india as a whole the mauryan administration and you can read it in a number of places made special efforts to help those who were needy and poor so the differences in the situation of the rich and poor were mitigated by actions of the state so perhaps the first welfare state that existed in history was the mauryan state there are many inscriptions the mauryan inscriptions which tell you exactly what they did for the people who needed these things there are lists of such actions in the arthashastra i told you for indigent women, indigent women they had uh, textile weaving and there are many other examples of what is to be done now what were the other problems that would beset indians in the ancient past calamities droughts so the crop failed so there were special actions taken for this as in there were store houses of granary etc and uh, granaries etc and food grains all these were given to people who needed them not only do we know it from texts but a very interesting inscription has survived it is a stone inscription i think it is at pipraha uh, which describes that these are the granaries and now you have to take out this much and give it to this one because of this reason so there is special thought expended on what to do when negative things happen when the crop fails when someone does not have enough to eat when someone does not have shelter it is a specific feature of the modern state to think about these things and to mitigate these uh well it's very interesting to note chandragupt became the king at around 25 years of age so says legend and he abdicated the throne in favor of his son bindusar when he was around 50 again so says the legend why because there was a long long multi year drought which had struck the modern kingdom and the modern kingdom had been fighting hard against it you see a lot of things in the arthashastra about how to distribute things to people how to make how to raise resources for these kind of actions so there was a long fight and it is said legend says that chandragupta was so unhappy and so sorrowful at this drought that he gave up his kingdom and he became a jain monk and he went to shravan devadev this is an aspect of the moderns which needs to be really studied and written down properly because they had a very special focus and chanakya kautilya had a special focus focus on saving the kingdom from calamities and we read chapter 8 on calamities many of these calamities are the things that contribute to inequalities in ancient in the ancient past and he had a a kind of uh, you know mitigating feature worked out for most of these things so it is my considered opinion that inequality would not have been the kind of problem that it is also you know you read a play for example if you read a play of bass then he describes common people also so the way in which common people are described are they in distress are they uh, you know hungry are they being exploited no they're not described like that they it is 
like I, I mentioned a little while ago, it is a very prosperous society which is being described. And in this prosperous society was a special focus on countering all the negative things, especially negative economic things which happened. And therefore, I would definitely say this should not have been a problem. In the map which you showed, um, the Hastinapur was falling under the eastern side of India. However, uh, wasn't it supposed to be in the Delhi region? So, if you sorry. can just clarify. No, Hastinapur, I'm sorry, maybe the map is not clear. Hastinapur is where it is. It's where Delhi is. It's not in the eastern side. So, maybe, you know, uh, when we uh, make an artistic representation of India's map, things are not exactly where they are. But no, I am not positing anything revolutionary about Hastinapur. Very much in Delhi region. Okay. And also, just to add on to uh, Surinderji's question, uh, if you can just share a bit about if there was any contingency planning which the Mauryan Empire... What used. planning? Sorry, Shruti, what planning? Con contingency planning uh, with oh, regard yes. to any natural calamities or anything. Yes, yes, yes. There is an entire chapter, like I said, chapter 8. So, chapter 8 has things like, if X happens, then what do you do? If Y happens, then what do you do? Also... If X happens to element A, what do you do? If X happens to element B, element 2 and element 3, who do you look after first? For this, uh, I don't know, maybe I can just you know read a bit. But yes, contingency planning is, I think, it is the strong point of continuity. So he thinks of all kinds of things which may happen. Starting with the king may be a fool to all the things that can beset all the seven elements of the Saptan state and he keeps saying if this happens, if this happens, you know for example what will he say that uh, suppose something happens to the waterworks, now you know waterworks are very important for irrigation, for people to drink water etc. So he will have a description of what must you do and how must you deal with it. So contingency planning is given in chapter 8 and a whole description of the kinds of problems that we set cities, kingdoms is there and you know it's a, it's a lot uh, should be difficult to tell you but chapter 8 of Arthashastra okay if you read volume 2 chapter 8 this will answer your question very well because they also tell you what to do see suppose the king is stupid or the king is blind or the king is really walking then suppose uh, you know the people of the Janpad are uh, a bad lot so they are too angry, they have too many vices, then property. That is an, another part of this one. Then, uh, suppose uh, the kingdom is not able to raise any resources. What happens if the treasury is going bankrupt? Then what to do? So you see, he has a very fertile and versatile mind and he comes up with many more calamities than he can do. And I think more or less, most calamities would have been covered in this particular chapter. So yes, contingency planning on all the seven elements of the state, very well done. Natya Shastra, you said that, uh, I think this is what I heard, that uh, it came about around the Mauryan time. Yes, okay, now Natya Shastra was a huge, long tradition. Right. And uh, there were, before Bharat Muni, there were so many other gurus. Who he mentions in the Natya Shastra itself. And okay. uh, the inception of Natya is in the Rig Veda. True. And there so is I... a long tradition 
if you are very interested you know you should listen to two people radha vallabh tripathi and bharat gupta you okay. will find both of them on youtube and they have excellent talks on natyashastra these details and if you want to know the different traditions especially radha vallabh tripathi on the natyashastra is really worth listening to participants had asked about the location of hastinapur uh, please excuse me that is a bit of artistic license because those maps are all drawn by hand by me and uh, therefore sometimes the location kashi may not be where it is and hastinapur may not be where it is yes. but, uh, we are not trying to change the geography of india at all it yeah. is you know, human representation that's all because uh, we have so few uh, artistic references to go by and uh, believe me every uh, image that i have drawn for morilok for sumedha has come after a very uh, intense discussion and reading so many books which sumedha throws it but my knowledge about arthashastra is just limited to the title of that whole treatise nothing beyond that so in that context what i have read in one or two places that arthashast mostly it talks about how the society or the king or the kingdom should be operated governed or people should operate and govern themselves and all of that rather than how it was happening at that time so that is why if you notice when i speak i tell you that this was written in the arthashast and these are also the other corroborating places from where there we get evidence to show that such and such a thing was happening one of the main major sources for modern india is the inscriptions the modern inscriptions that you find from afghanistan to madurai and saurashtra to uh, to chandraketu gad other than that there are also remains and uh, other than that there are uh, kind of uh, epigraphic because you have some epigraphy that is inscriptions that you find you know the one i told you about granaries etc that is an mm. inscription and that inscription ties in with what is written in the arthashastra so you have to read the arthashastra you are right and whoever wrote it is right the arthashastra is a manual right it's a manual it is not a description right. of tatin sa chandragupta did this and ashok did this so you will always notice that i mention the arthashastra and i give you corroborating evidence from many different places another very important place is the indica of megasthenes megasthenes had come to india during the time of chandragupta and he had left a detailed description of indian society polity cities everything the book is lost but there are excerpts from it written by other people who came later like strabo justin etc we can read those and reconstruct the indica and reconstruct what was there for example you know uh, the different departments i told you about they are mentioned in the arthashastra hmm. how do you know that they were there you know they were there because megasthenes mentioned them okay got it and also uh, you know if we are to talk about all the sources of evidence we have sources of evidence also in terms of the sanskrit nataks of the time that is the natak of bhas so from there you can glean a lot about society and polity and uh, you have to see i said right at the beginning of la the last talk that there are certain five or six sources of evidence for all historic reconstruction you have to use all of them in a very considered way and you have to corroborate with each other if you read hmm. this can you corroborate it with that inscription if you read this can you find a remain if i told you that uh, wattle and dog houses were made or brick and mud houses were made how do i know it because certain remains are found if i told you that uh, such and such a thing uh, was eaten and i am telling you because there is the shlok in the arthashastra 
there are also remains of such grains found at in the different layers of the excavations okay okay Got so it. the aftershaft is a kind of structure it's a manual right. it's a it's a it's a outline we fill in the picture by using all different kinds of other evidences got it got it thank you thank you so i'm reading ramayana again and balkand and i could see there's a beautiful description of ayodhya done by um valmiki where he even goes to the extent that how the city is laid out how wider the roads are okay i'll send the... you the reference uh, yeah and uh, i look forward to the session where you'll talk about the women as well because the ramayana gives a very beautiful description where it says that women are uh, free to move anywhere in the city without any fear so uh, that is one part uh, one part where i wanted to know is uh, for the janpad part so uh, ramayana says there is a janpad then there is uh, uh, you know the jungles and in the jungle you have the ashrams so the ashram don't come under the janpad however because however the king is supposed to protect them right so uh, no so for as, uh, as far as you see when these seven elements are concerned there are many people who have theorized about them and there are many people who have described them we are focusing on portelier's definition and in portelier's definition forests and hermitages are very much part of the temple it is definitely true that if you read about the saptang state in the ramayana and the mahabharat and in certain other sources people have their differences and many of those differences are also mentioned in many chapters of the arthashastra that such and such person said this but i don't agree in in a section i'm again uh, uh, you know a translation i'm reading where it says there a section of the society had experimental buildings and which what? means experimental buildings which means these were the buildings which were not designed a traditional way again i'm talking referring to uh, ramayana so does that mean that so oh, that's very possible because uh, when we uh, read about when i talk to you about i hope i have enough time about vastu shastra and shilp shastra so that was the art of art and science of construction and in that art and science of construction there were certain rules laid down you could also use those rules in many many novel kind of ways and uh, many different kinds of dwellings have been described in so many of the texts so that's absolutely acceptable probably was done and no surprises there right so does that mean people used to travel even to gain this knowledge from elsewhere like probably the architects like the architects were they you know like the uh, like the business people were they also used to travel and get gain the knowledge about how to make different houses and other things yes 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 absolutely and all this you know is uh, again if you read a lot of texts based around that time and you get a sense of the way people operated and you get a sense of the way people um, worked and there was collaboration there was meeting of different kinds of technical people different kinds of intellectual people and this was supported and encouraged by kings merchants so there was a lot of intellectual exchange so this intellectual exchange happened not only for abstract things but also for technology now uh, one of the coming up episodes of morelok is going to be on the technologies of the period and those will take in some of the questions that you are raising and uh, again if you are interested in this area i can give you a suggestion go to the iit gandhinagar channel there is an iks series done by michel denino 
in one of the years i think it was 2020 he concentrated on technology so many of the questions that you're asking about architects about the way things were designed you may find answers in it and that's a section which you will find very interesting actually the whole uh, i would suggest that all the people who are here they can go to iit gandhi nagar website and michel danino does this really wonderful ips series by very good scholars watch those and watch my upcoming episode on technology it was about roads and i just wanted to know whether uh, because you stated that the roads were at right angle and there was a kind of you know town planning which was very well laid out so my question was that is it a continuation from the harappan and mohenjodaro uh, settlement and the society very very likely because there have been some people who have worked on the continuities of the measurements and ratios and proportions used during the harappan period during the saraswati sindhu period for this i would suggest you read some of subhash kak's works he's done a lot of work in this area so i've heard from somewhere that uh, the sari came from helena who's chandragupta's wife in no historic document source text evidence is the name of the person chandragupta married actually where do we get this information that there was a marital alliance between chandragupta and seleucus we get this information from that same lost greek source does it say that this one married this one no in fact what it says is that elephants were exchanged exchanged land was exchanged and marital relations between the morians and the seleucids were established please if possible delete helena from wikipedia i am just uh, you know I, i get a lot of this but no wikipedia says helena was chandragupta's wife and uh, uh, tamya i mean whoever has written this has made it up out of whole cloth like i told you the sari has a very different kind of trajectory we have explored some of that trajectory chandragupta's wife probably existed uh, uh, whether it was helena or anyone else but she did not wear a sari she if she was there she wore a uttariya antariya and kayabandi the sari as we know has developed over the ages and actually you know this kind of sari is jorasanko's women and uh, the other kind there's only different kind of sarees even today purgi people wear a different sari the other people gujarati people wear a different sari so no helena had nothing to do with it helena doesn't exist okay i, I, think, I, mean, I don't have patience with wikipedia or i would go there and delete it myself tv serials well they uh, influence people a lot and somehow they seem to think that it's all correct such as like sela week 